Hello and welcome to the Deadline Election Line podcast. I'm Ted Johnson in Washington. I'm Dominic Patton in Los Angeles. Through the end of the year, we're going to feature interviews with top political and entertainment figures as we spotlight where DC meets Hollywood. And that's the real sum of Election Line, which is this project we're doing right up to the election and maybe a little bit more, is looking at the figures and the individuals and the topics that are really fueling this year's election. And let's be honest, there are a plethora of them. In just a bit, we're going to chat with Adam Schiff, whose congressional district covers Burbank and Hollywood and other parts of the entertainment community. He's now the leading candidate in polls in California's hotly contested Senate race. But before we talk to Representative, probably likely Senator Adam Schiff, we're going to talk about what's something a little closer to home, a little closer on the calendar. Because on Sunday, much of the country will be watching one thing, the Super Bowl. But of course, unlike many Super Bowls in the past, people will be watching the teams, the 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs on the field. But they're also going to be watching a particular superstar who's going to be up in a private box having just flown over from playing a show in Japan. And that is Taylor Swift. Something that's captivated the media, raised it up ratings for the NFL, gotten their praise for bringing new audiences and new eyeballs to their games, and has turned her boyfriend, who plays for the Kansas City Chiefs as a tight end, into a whole other level of superstar, far beyond being just NFL famous. But with all that, Taylor Swift has once again become a polarizing political figure, especially on the far right. I need to be on the right side of history. What's happened is she's become the subject of conspiracy theories. This actually uh, took place even before the uh, the big Super Bowl, that she was somehow a psyop being planted to try to be some kind of a secret figure and somehow help Biden. I have to tell you that it's hard to even understand the reasoning behind some of these conspiracy theories, but they definitely were revived right after the AFC championship game and right after Taylor Swift became this kind of political sensation. That was also combined with the story in the New York Times, in which Biden and campaign advisors were kind of musing about the possibilities of Taylor Swift to actually were actually to go out and campaign with Biden or endorse Biden, or Biden would go to one of her concerts. Yeah, I mean, look, Taylor Swift, back in when she did her Miss Americana uh, documentary, which debuted at the Sundance Film Festival and was on Netflix, you know, she on on screen in that documentary really works over if she's finally going to make a political statement, which she does about a Senate race. By the way, the candidate she endorsed did not win. And in 2020, of course, she endorsed Joe Biden. She did not campaign for him. But we know now that Taylor Swift's superstardom has blown up even bigger. And the fact of the matter is, be it the war in Gaza or anything else, the incumbent does have a problem with young people. And the idea is, is that if you get the Swifties out in force, you can tip what everyone thinks is already going to be a tight election. So that's all reasonable. That's not a conspiracy theory. The conspiracy theory, I'm just going to give Ted, and you please correct me, I'm going to give the bare bones version of this. When the Kansas City Chiefs win the Super Bowl, which has been preordained according to this conspiracy theory, then... Taylor Swift, either on the field when she runs out to kiss her boyfriend or whatever, or soon after, is going to use the millions and millions of eyeballs that are watching the Super Bowl and announce that she's supporting President Biden in the forthcoming election, and thereby, in the MAGA moron's point of view, destroy any chance that Donald Trump has of ever becoming president. There were commentators, for example, on Fox News, who dismissed the conspiracy theory, but nevertheless said, hey, 
she shouldn't go out and endorse. That's probably a, a testament to, uh, I guess, the influence that she is perceived to have. Do we know whether that actually occurs? There's not a lot of data. Uh, what we do have is she has done these kind of get out the vote messages, and that has seen an uptick in people registering to vote that you're not getting with Joe Biden and you don't get with Trump like you did in the two previous cycles. Well, let's also then flip the script, my friend. Maybe this really is all a black op. Maybe this is just to promote her upcoming album, Tortured Poets Department, <laughs> drops in April, and it's going to be a great big thing to have that announced at the Super Bowl in some way or another. By the way, Usher is also doing the halftime show, and Taylor will not be performing with him. We've been assured of that. Joe Biden will not be giving an interview during the Super Bowl. Beyond that, it's just a game. And I'm not talking about the Super Bowl, if you know what I mean. What I don't want to see is the Bills winning the Super Bowl. As long as I'm alive, that doesn't happen. Could be tough, sir. Buffalo wants it bad. So did the Soviets in 80. What, are you saying you rigged the Olympic hockey game? Payback's a bitch, Ivan. Well, that was a clip of the smoking man from the X-Files, proving that conspiracy theories are nothing new to America. So remember that when you were talking about Taylor Swift this weekend. Having said that, our guest has served in Congress since 2001. Adam Schiff's district includes parts of Hollywood and Burbank, and now he is running for Senate, with the first test being the state's primary on March 5th. Congressman Schiff, thank you for joining us. Great to be with you. First off, this has already been a very momentous week, the appellate court decision on presidential immunity. You have said this decision against Donald Trump was not a hard decision for the judges. Uh, given the ruling, do you think the Supreme Court will even take up this case or will they let this decision stand? I hope they let the decision stand. I think it will really depend on whether uh, enough of the justices want to play along with Donald Trump's strategy of delay, because this is really not a hard case, because even for this reactionary court, to find that a president could willy-nilly violate the law and, and even more so violate the law when it comes to the most important check on a president's power, that is the ability to vote him out of office, to say that he could violate the law and try to stay in office anyway would, be, uh, would turn the Constitution into a suicide pact. Uh, so this isn't a tough case on the merits, but I think we have at least a couple of justices and maybe more that may want to do Donald Trump the favor of prolonging this so that the trial doesn't take place before the election, so that Donald Trump, if he were to be elected, could make the case go away. But I, I hope they will simply decline to take the case because they really shouldn't. They really don't need to. It's not a difficult issue. How likely is it that we will see a January 6th case, this January 6th case, before the election? I think it will almost entirely depend on whether the Supreme Court drags its heels. If they don't, and if they deny cert uh, and say, we're not going to hear this, then the trial goes forward before the election. Uh, if they don't, if they string it along for a while uh, until we get too close to the election, then the court may decide, uh, even if it could, you know, somehow squeeze it in uh, in the late fall, that uh, to avoid the appearance of influence in the election, they'll wait until after. So it, it really depends completely on what the Supreme Court does or doesn't do. 
Congressman, going into this this election, obviously you are hoping, looking, and polls are saying probably very likely we'll be taking in an, on another role in, at our Capitol, moving from congressman, from what we call the District of Hollywood, to senator for the great state of California. But to that, I wonder, do you worry or do you have concerns that we might see another January 6th if the former president and celebrity apprentice host does not win the election in November. I do have to worry about that because what we've seen consistently from Donald Trump is he goes from worse to worse to worse. He already once tried to avoid the peaceful transfer of power. Uh, can we be confident he wouldn't try once again to cheat in the election? I, I don't think so. There's no basis to have that confidence. The best way to avoid it is to repudiate Donald Trump overwhelmingly at the polls, and that's what I hope we will do. Well, one more thing about that is, you know, there's a film that, that was a, at Sundance this year called War Game. The former governor of Montana is in it, and, and, and various senators, General Wesley Clark is in it, playing out a situation of if there was a January 6, 2025, with one little difference, which is this time extremists in the military get involved and the guns start coming out. What are some of your concerns about that extremism in the military? Because we've heard a lot of discussion about it, but we haven't seen much action about it. Well, you know, first of all, I would say, and this I think should give people some reason for optimism, the machinery of government is not in Donald Trump's hands right now. Uh, and so in the election, in the transition period after the election, uh, that will be, you know, that will continue to be done by the Biden administration. But for the most part, uh, I think among the top uh, brass in the military, there is a devotion to civilian rule. Uh, so I think that there is an institutional safeguard there. But as for, you know, the degree to which people with law enforcement and other backgrounds in uniform participate in January 6th, it's reason for a lot of concern. I want to talk quickly a little bit closer to home. During the WGA and sag after strikes, you took to the picket lines. You were very vocal about it. Um, other people, Mayor Bass, Governor Newsom, much more in the background, participating, but they weren't out there on the front lines. You sort of did like what the president did with the auto workers. Did you feel that you got any blowback from the studios because of that? Uh, you know, certainly I got some pushback from the studios about it. But, you know, I've always been candid. Uh, you know, I'm uh, really proud to represent the industry and to fight things like runaway production and, and uh, intellectual property theft. But when it comes to compensating the workforce, uh, I support the workforce. Uh, and I think more than that, what the actors and the writers and others were fighting for, uh, in particular, the battles over AI, has deep implications for the workforce all over the country. And if we don't respond uh, and we don't make sure that, that the workforce is protected, then it's going to just squeeze the middle class further. It's going to make life harder for working families. And so I think the fight that the actors and the writers and others were engaged in is really a national struggle for working people everywhere. Uh, and I was proud to be on the picket lines with them. The uh, the Teamsters and IATSE are gearing up for contract talks this year. Would you join them on the picket line if it actually comes to a strike? Uh, I sure would. I sure would. Uh, you know, look, people have to provide for their family. Uh, the industry is very profitable, maybe not as profitable as it was before streaming, but nevertheless, and, and obviously some are making a lot of money from streaming. 
is still profitable. Uh, and the people that make the magic happen on the screen, uh, they ought to be compensated. They ought to share in that prosperity. I think part of the reason why our country has been vulnerable to a demagogue like Donald Trump is that, you know, lots of people are working harder than ever and still struggling to get by. Uh, and we've seen these seismic changes in the nature of work. Uh, and that leaves them vulnerable to any demagogue who comes along promising they alone can fix things. So I think making our economy work for people is really also part and parcel of saving our democracy. You, you mentioned AI. There was a House Judiciary uh, subcommittee hearing in Los Angeles uh, last week, and I believe you spoke at that about, about AI and the need for setting guardrails. How, how likely do you think it is that Congress will actually take action on this, given that they have not taken action just on things like privacy online? And We've gone through, you know, years and years of hearings, yet no significant tech legislation has gotten through Congress. You know, I think there's actually a real opportunity to get things done here and get things done on a bipartisan basis. For one thing, I think legislators can very well see the risks of AI and how it might be deployed against them. Uh, I made this comment during the hearing that I always tell my colleagues in Congress, you know, given that I represent Hollywood both literally and, and figuratively, that it's good for us in elective office to spend some time with celebrities because you get to know what celebrity is and it's not us. Uh, you know, I used to say before he passed that uh, when people trample you to get Pee Wee Herman's autograph, you know where you are in the scheme of things. Um, but uh, I would also mention with you and Seth MacFarlane and your loving, charming, trading tweets of who may be the most, the funniest and who might be the most political after your joint appearance on Bill Maher. Well, I, I have a wonderful uh, tradition. Every year I do a comedy night at the Comedy Store, the Improv, and we, we have some wonderful professionals come in, and it's a campaign event, and they perform, and I do a little stand-up, but it's just so that people will yell out, don't give up the day job, because that's the yeah. whole point. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I, I mentioned what I, what I said at the hearing, because none of us in elective office want to see our image, our likeness, our voice. Um, you know, faked in a deep fake. Uh, it could be incredibly damaging to, to us. And so we ought to be able to uh, step into the shoes of those in the entertainment industry. To that, let, let me ask you two specifics on that. So there was the deep fake phone calls that were using the president's voice that happened in one of the primaries. And of course, there was the vast and, and unseemly and horrific proliferation of uh, deep fake pornography um, utilizing Taylor Swift. These are two things that are happening in our country right now. What can be done to stop this? It's going to affect everyone. Uh, it's certainly true. And this is an issue. I think I may have had the first hearing in Congress on deep fake technology when I chaired the Intelligence Committee because I was worried about the foreign deployment of deep fakes uh, interfering in our election process. Uh, it's going to mean, I think, that we have to work closely with the technology companies to make sure that, that we have the best technology to be able to demonstrate whether something is real or fraud. And when there are frauds, we're gonna need these technology platforms to take those down. Uh, once you see it, some of the damage is already done. So taking this stuff down when it's demonstrably false and doing it quickly, uh, having you know a, a good collaborative working relationship between the, uh, the, the federal government and the FBI when they discern foreign bad actors that are pushing deep fakes, really important. 
But but I also want to say because I don't want to focus AI exclusively on deep fake stuff. The broader concern I have is the impact on the economy uh, and the continuing change nature of work. That if we as policymakers don't keep up, people are going to be left behind. But I I, I do sense greater willingness than I did with the social media experiment uh, gone awry, which we just essentially didn't regulate, that there is a great interest and willingness of members on both sides of the aisle to regulate AI. Now, let's talk a little bit about the shift that's happening in Adam Schiff's career. So obviously, you are running for to be the junior senator from the Golden State. Polls say that you're going to be the guy. But let me ask a couple of questions specifically about that. Going from a congressman to a senator, as you said, everyone becomes your constituent at that point. One of the things that we've seen in the past decade in California is the rise and success of the tax credits program that the state has brought in, which has about a $330 million a year credit, but then there's other ones added on. The governor is having to make some hard decisions right now with the budget because of the the deficit we have here. It looks like right now that tax credit program is pretty safe. But if you become our senator, what would you do to help grow that tax credit program? How do you think it should maybe change? And I ask that in relation to when you talk about work and what AI can do specifically for the entertainment workers here in California. Uh, You know, no one has been more deeply impacted, and I think in a positive way, by that tax credit to keep production in California than my constituents, Uh, which is why ever since I was a state senator, I fought for tax credits to keep production in California. I carried legislation years ago to use surplus state properties for production at no cost. Uh, And in Congress, I've continued to fight to keep uh, the entertainment industry in California and in the United States you know, as a longtime resident of Burbank, I have seen my friends and neighbors, uh, you know, working 50 weeks a year and then working 45 weeks a year, then working only 35 weeks a year, losing their work to runaway production. Uh, I want to keep those good paying jobs in California. That is very uh, top priority for me. Congressman, if you become senator, you will also have the tech industry as your constituent, the concentration up in Silicon Valley. I talked about tech legislation and how it's stalled out. One of the complaints from uh, Senator Klobuchar has been that she has championed meaningful bills to regulate the tech industry, but they have they've died because of the influence of uh, the tech lobby on Capitol Hill. How would you handle a situation like that, given that you would be uh, serving uh, both constituencies, a number of uh, entertainment and tech? Well, you know, first of all, I would say, you know, we've been uh, blessed economically by having a very strong uh, innovation economy in California. Uh, And we don't want to lose our innovation economy. We don't want to chase that overseas. But, you know, my feeling has always been we gave the industry immunity from liability because when they were a small nascent industry, they said, give us immunity so that we can innovate without being hindered, but but also so that we can moderate content and take down harmful or insightful content. So we gave them immunity and then they haven't used it uh, to protect us. They've used it to, you know, essentially shield algorithms that multiply harms uh, instead of taking down content that is harmful. Uh, And so if they're not going to be good corporate citizens, they should lose that immunity or we should 
you know, more narrowly confine that immunity. What, what about the proposal? I think it was Senator Lindsey Graham at the hearing last week said we should get rid of Section 230, which is the provision that provides immunity. Would you support something like that? Or do you think modifications are, are probably a, a wiser choice? Uh, you know, I would support either a narrowing of the immunity, basically uh, to prevent these platforms for, uh, from setting their algorithms to uh, what they call engagement. But what that really means is hatred and uh, incitement, the things that get people's blood boiling, the king- things that keep them on their platform. Uh, you know, if they're going to continue that kind of harmful content, they should lose their immunity. So either narrow it, if we can find a feasible, measurable way to narrow it, uh, or get rid of it. Because I do think that if the platformers had to worry that, oh my gosh, if our platform causes real world, world harm, we're going to get sued, it would change behaviors in a positive way. Congressman, the primary is going to be on March 5th here in California. Lots of people running. There's even a Republican running who may come in second place. People are voting everywhere. But we have one question for you as you leave us today, and we hope you'll come back and join us more on the Election Line podcast. Who is your favorite fictional president of the United States? My favorite fictional president? Oh, my God. I would probably have to say, yes, Michael Douglas in American Dad. Oh, you mean Michael Douglas in The American President? Michael Douglas, the American president. Oh, 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 oh. I I clearly got Seth MacFarlane on the brain. Congressman, I have to say, once you may become senator, if you run for president, I think you and Seth have to have a talk about a a ticket. Because you clearly, you two are meant to do stuff together. (laughs) So, well, I would be, be honored to be on the ticket with Seth MacFarlane. Well, we are very honored to have you with us today. Thank you so much for your time, Congressman Schiff. Well, great to be with you. <laughs> Thank you for being with us. You bet. I've been here three years and three days, and I can tell you without hesitation, being president of this country is entirely about character. That was Michael Douglas from The American President. And now, that was very straightforwardly put, but recently a number of presidential candidates have had a little verbal gaffe. Recently, President Biden, in two fundraisers in New York City, referred to a discussion he had with Helmut Kohl in 2020 or 2021, the former chancellor of Germany, who, by the way, has been dead since 2017. He also referred to Mitterrand from Germany in another event, reference to former French President Francis Mitterrand, also deceased, also never the chancellor of Germany. Donald Trump gave a long, long speech where he used the words Nikki Haley instead of Nancy Pelosi in talking about security at the Capitol on January 6th. And more recently, Nikki Haley said hello, Orange County, to an audience in Los Angeles. It's great to be here in Orange County. I got to tell you, it's... Oh, LA County, sorry. sorry. So, Ted, what is up with these presidential brain freezes, you think? Well, I think it's a reminder that uh, that these these political figures are going all day long. Uh, you know, I I had brain freezes when I was in my twenties. Uh, Nikki Haley in her fifties, uh, Donald Trump in his seventies, and Biden in his eighties. On the surface, it's not a surprise, but uh, especially for Biden, who the right has really tried to characterize as in cognitive decline. The stakes only get higher as we get closer and closer to the election. You know, I was in New Hampshire and talking to voters 
these are Biden voters, and they would say, oh, I'm disappointed in Joe Biden. But it always came back to the age issue. And I think this really feeds into that. This is the big question is how will the Biden campaign really address that issue, which uh, a lot of political pundits say hasn't really been tackled head on yet. I'm not going to give the president a pass on this, but I will give him this. It's well known that Joe Biden has suffered from a stutter throughout his youth. He's worked very hard to overcome that. He's been a great mentor and advocate for people who have stutters. I wonder sometimes if that's what a little bit of this is, the brain freeze, where he's neurologically going to a word that he's more comfortable with. Having said that, Joe Biden has been a gaffe machine for years. So I wonder in part, do you think that's why for the second year in a row, the president is not giving the customary Super Bowl interview to the broadcaster of the big game? Yeah, I, I mean, that was a very puzzling decision. What happened is CBS offered this uh, pregame interview to the White House and they turned it down. It surprised a lot of people. The word from the White House is that they disagreed with this this offering to essentially give Biden three minutes during the Super Bowl pregame. Uh, but even that is pretty standard practice. The last couple presidential pregame interviews have been up to five minutes in length. So I don't know. I, I've talked to a number of people about it. And some people said, don't discount just the prep time that these interviews take uh, with all that is going on in the world. They may have just made the calculation that the risk was much greater than the reward. I agree. And I hope that you agree. And I hope you agree to keep listening to us. Of course, you'll be able to find the Election Live podcast on all major podcast platforms. Ted and I will be back. We'll be talking. We're going to have more major political and entertainment figures joining us throughout the year. I'm Dominic Patton from Los Angeles. I'm Ted Johnson from Washington. And thank you very much for listening to the Deadline Election Line podcast.